The beautiful thing about the rational mind is that you can create rational lies. And so to rationalize is sometimes to create rational lies. And so your rational mind can become hijacked by the shadow, by this part of you that is, maybe I'll just say this directly, the shadow is the psychological part of you that you don't want other people to know about, that you don't want to necessarily admit to, your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, your worries, your pain that you don't want to deal with. Welcome back to the Better Than Rich Show. For many of you, this man does not need any introduction at all. You've probably followed his work. He's been featured internationally, all around the world. I mean, this guy has spoke on stages with Lewis Howes and Gary Vanderchak. His name is Connor Beaton. And many of you know Connor as uh, the founder of Man Talks. But if you don't know Connor, you are in for a treat with this conversation because he has such a profound wisdom when it comes to raising boys, about being a man, about the shadow work. We go into a deep dives on masculinity. He lists off statistics that are extremely in-depth and the causes behind some of these statistics about men and raising boys. Again, you got to know Connor Beaton. He's an international speaker, author of the best-selling book, Men's Work, host of a top-ranked podcast, he works with men who are looking to lead themselves and their lives more effectively. And since founding Man Talks, Connor's spoken on stage at TEDx. He has been featured in platforms like United Nations, Forbes, Huffington Post, He for She, The Good Men Project, CBC, and The National Post. We go into details on self-leadership, what it means to be a modern man. And I'm just so honored to have him as a guest on this show. So get ready for another great episode of Better Than Rich Show with Connor Beaton. Welcome to the Better Than Rich Show with your hosts, Andrew Biggs and Mike Abramowitz. The Better Than Rich Show helps ambitious leaders who are on a mission to leave the world better than they found it, change their perspective on what's important, increase their income and impact, and systemize their life and business. If you've ever struggled with finding your purpose, have felt disconnected or distracted, or found yourself going through the motions, this show will remind you that what you do matters and will re-inspire you to chase your highest dreams. It's time for you to become better than rich. Better than rich listeners, you are in for a treat today. I am really excited. Men's work. Connor, I, I told you off air, but I got through the first 74 page. I promise I'm going to finish it. But these first 74 pages are filled with awesome questions that are just helping me peel back layers that I didn't know that I haven't visited yet about who I am as a man, who I am as a human. And you really went deep and you got me with the Fight Club analogy in the book, really sucked me in. We're gonna talk about the book in a moment and obviously through this conversation, but brother, Andrew, Connor, welcome to the show. Welcome to the conversation. I'm excited to have you here, Connor. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate the kind words and looking forward to diving with you. You won me over back in Miami. I don't even know what year that was. You might remember, but in Miami, <laughs> was so I think it was, I'm like, it was it 2015 or something like that? Uh, yeah, I don't even know anymore. Like, two, yeah, 2017, maybe. I'm not 17 sure. Maybe. Something like that. Somewhere in that range. And our mutual friend, Dean DeVries, he, they put on this event and you put on this event. I felt really special. He flew me in, got a hotel. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be like a one of the messages at this cool event. And then I hear your talk. I felt like I did a good job, but blew me away when I heard your resume, I heard your talk, your candor, how real and vulnerable and how deep you went in such a short period of time. I'm like, I don't know what it's going to take, but I need to be friends with this guy. So I've been following mm -hmm. your journey and podcasts and man talks and everything you've been doing is just so powerful. And I have to ask, like, why did you choose to make this men's work your mission? You obviously have experienced a beautiful life and you've in Canada and some listeners, a lot of our listeners probably know who you are, but if they don't, just a beautiful soul willing to help men have helped men discover purpose and who they are and understanding what real masculinity is. Why did you make this a topic that you were like, I've got to serve this community and I've got to help this group of people? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different avenues that I could bring into that. So maybe I'll just say one is personal, the other one is within my sort of friend circle, and then the other one is really social. I think we 
in our modern conversation, there's a lot of dialogue within modern society about this notion of young men in decline. And you can see it in the stats. You can see it in the research in the sense that 20% or one third of men under 30 in today's age haven't been sexually active in the last year or more. And that's up three times from 2010. Less men are going and graduating from college than ever before. And it's such that in three to five years, for every two women that are in college, there'll be one man. So we can see men are stepping out of the public square. They're stepping out of dating. They're stepping out of pursuing women and relationships. They're stepping out of colleges and institutions. The rise of men being incarcerated is exponentially higher than ever before. Men committing suicide is higher than ever before. Men struggling with depression is higher than ever before. So I think there's a lot of social pieces and components about why I think this work is relevant and important, not to mention the fact that like one in four kids in America are going to grow up without a father figure present in their household. And so we lack a kind of masculine or male energy within our culture and our society. We also just don't have it as we grow up. If you didn't grow up with a dad in your household and you go into the education system, it's 32% of the teachers in the education system in the United States are male. And then you look out of the therapeutic industry, 29 percent of the psychologists that are out there are male. So there's just this big deficit when it comes to male and masculine role models and energy. So that's kind of the social one, which we could talk about. But personally, I'll try and condense this down. If you had met me about 12 years ago, you would have met somebody who had on the outside, what it looked like having it all together. I had this cool career. I was a musician. I was traveling the world. I had this wonderful girlfriend I was dating at the time. And I had the motorcycle and the Mustang. I had built the things that I thought were necessary for being a great man within our society. But behind the scenes, I was just a disaster. I was 28 years old. I was lost. And I was abusing alcohol and substances and pornography. I was cheating in my relationships. And I was really struggling, but no one really knew. And so eventually what happened was everything fell apart. My girlfriend found out that I had been unfaithful and left. I was debating leaving my career. And so everything that I had kind of built up all of a sudden got stripped away. And I had a lot of shame around the shit that I had been doing, the fact that I was out of control, the fact that I was miserable, the fact that I was sitting on the couch watching porn and playing video games nonstop was, I didn't like that because I didn't feel like I was actually living a meaningful life. And rather than tell people in my life, and I, I write about this in my book, rather than tell people what was going on, I moved into the back of my car. I thought that was on some level a good idea <laughs> and on another level, I thought that's what I deserved. And so I moved all my stuff into storage and I didn't tell people what was going on. And I lived out of the back of my car and in parking lots and shit for a couple of weeks. And then finally realized that that wasn't workable and that I needed to admit the shit that I was dealing with, you know, that running from it for so long was really having a net negative impact in my life. Not admitting that I was struggling, not admitting that I was having some problems in my relationship or in my finances or whatever it was, that was really harming me. And I'll wrap it up by just telling you one quick little story, which was that when I decided to connect with people and tell them what was going on, I sat down and had a conversation with a buddy of mine and I probably kind of like verbally vomited at him for like 30 minutes straight and just told him everything that had been going on behind the scenes, the lies, the cheating, the substance abuse. And he sat and listened to the whole thing. And to his credit, you know, at the very end of it, he said, thank you. He said, thanks for telling me and I appreciate it. And then he got pretty emotional. And he said, I just want to share with you something that I've been dealing with as well. And I said, okay. And of course, I braced for the worst. You know, I kind of thought like, oh, have you been sleeping with my ex-girlfriend? You know, like, have you been screwing around with somebody in my life and thinking that maybe he had been doing something similar to what I had been doing? But he continued to tell me that he had been struggling with some pretty severe depression and that he had tried to take his own life about a month and a half before. And it hit me in that moment that I knew everything about this dude. I knew what he liked to eat. I knew the scotch that he liked to drink. I knew the places that he wanted to visit, like the music that he wanted to listen to. Like I just knew so much about this guy, but I didn't know that he was really struggling. And most of the men that I started to connect with that were in my life, this pattern repeated itself. I opened up, I shared about what I had been hiding behind the scenes about how I had been struggling. And I learned about the businesses that I thought were going really well, but that were actually struggling 
struggling. I learned about men who had been married or were married and were really unhappy or were really struggling with their wife or they were struggling with their kids or they had health problems that they hadn't talked about. And so I started to realize that I had these very surface level relationships with most of the men in my life and that a huge part of what I had been lacking was depth and substance within the relationships with other men in my life. And so that's a part of why I think that this work is so important is that there's a real, uh, dare I say, epidemic of isolation and loneliness amongst men pretty much everywhere, not just a North American thing. It's like in the UK, they did a study back in 2019 where like 50% of guys couldn't identify a best friend. And it's gotten so bad in the UK that they've appointed a minister of loneliness. They have a fucking minister of loneliness to try and figure out how do we actually deal with this problem because so many people are isolated. And again, you can see this in the data that is showing up within years today, where less and less young men and young boys are dating are joining sport leagues and sport teams, are hanging out with friends. So I think that's why it's a huge piece of my purpose and my mission and why I think that this work is so valuable. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Connor. Really appreciate it and outlining everything. It's clear that you've also really studied this issue. You also have personal stories connected to friends. And I think every man listening, I certainly can, I can relate to being all of the men in these stories. Before we get into, okay, how do we solve the problem? I would love to hear your take. Why do you think this is such a big problem? Why is this an epidemic amongst men? And why do you think men are hurting so much right now? I think it's a bunch of contributing factors. If you went online in the, (laughs) into the like red pill, black pill forums, You'd probably hear a lot of blaming towards the women's movement and feminism and stuff like that. And I don't necessarily think that's a huge contributing factor. I think that's a good scapegoat that in some ways, what we're starting to see is a culmination of one, our institutions aren't actually set up to really support men and the way that we develop. So for example, there's a gentleman named uh, Richard Reeves, who just wrote a book called On Boys and Men. And some of the research that he sort of lays out within the book shows a few things. One, boys develop neurologically slower than girls. And so you have this huge gap that's starting to show up in the education system that we just didn't know about because women and girls largely weren't in continuing education. They weren't super active in education up until, unfortunately, 150 years ago. And so now that they've entered into that force, what we're seeing is that they develop quite a bit faster than young boys. I'll give you an example. My son is 22 months old. A couple months ago, we were on a plane and behind us was this father with his daughter and his daughter was just chatting away. Like she was, how's, I want to watch this. I want to play with that. Yes, dad. No. Oh, look, there's a baby in front of us. And she was referring to my son and my son doesn't talk yet. At the time, I think he was about 20 months old. And I turned around and I said to the other dad, I said, how old's your daughter? And he says, she's 17 months. And I was like, holy shit. She is talking at like a second grade level. That's insane. But we know fundamentally that a young boy's prefrontal cortex is going to develop quite a bit slower than young girls. And so unfortunately, what's happened is that we've actually created an education system where it's, and we didn't know this before, where it's actually very beneficial for the progression and the development of young girls, but very detrimental in some ways to the progression and development of young boys. And again, not all young boys, but the majority of them. So I think that there's institutional challenges that we can look at, and that's not necessarily my expertise, to be honest. I think culturally, there are also norms that we've bought into. Like in the book, I talk about the one rule of men, which is the Fight Club reference, which is this notion that there's strength in suppression, that you as a man will somehow gain psychological, physical, and emotional strength by suppressing what you perceive as weakness, what makes you feel insecure. And so the one rule of men is very simple. It's don't talk about what it's like to be a man who is struggling, whether you're struggling in your marriage, whether you're struggling with your health or your weight or your body image or your sexual performance or your finances or your career, just don't talk about it. And that that somehow is the solution, which is like psychological 
logically, it's stupid. It's actually a very stupid and counterintuitive way of being because we know that just ignoring things that aren't working is actually vastly more damaging than addressing them. I think in some ways, we as men have to break that one rule. We have to be willing to say and understand and know that there's actually an immense amount of strength in confronting the things that are going wrong, the things that we're struggling with, and that our path towards a deeper kind of strength and sovereignty and contribution and purpose in our life is actually by turning towards the things that we haven't wanted to address, regardless of the area in our life that resides. I think that those are a couple facts that we as men sometimes can reinforce this notion. And the other thing that I'll say very quickly is I think it's become exceedingly easy to be domesticated and to be wildly distracted. It is just so easy for you as a man to wake up, go on social media, maybe go into work, come back home, play video games, watch porn, go on social media and go to bed. And to not have any real social interaction, to not pursue your goals, to not pursue the type of body that you want, to not pursue making the type of money that you want or building the type of career that you want. And so I think that a lot of men, <clears throat> when they look out at the hardship that life and culture and society has to offer, because life is hard and it's challenging, I think that it's very easy to get sucked under by the current uh, of our culture and just acquiesce to all of these distractions. And I battle, I'm saying that from a personal experience. I've battled porn for a long time and played video games all the time and drank my face off and smoked weed on weekends and did all of those things. I, I like to say that I have a 500 pound lazy fat dude in me that just wants to smoke weed, play video games and eat unhealthy food. And, and I think that many of us have that within us. And part of our work is to confront that part. It's to get that part on board so that it's moving with us versus against us. So those are a couple contributing factors. I'm actually curious to get your guys' sense of what you think is contributing to it. First off, I can relate to everything you just said, right? <laughs> that 500 pound fat guy who wants to sit around, eat whatever he wants all day and watch TV and watch porn and, and all of that. And I think it's no wonder it's an epidemic. I think this whole idea of this one rule of for men of just don't talk about it. It's what was modeled for us in a lot of ways. I don't ever really remember having a conversation with my dad about something he was struggling with. Now, maybe that's because he's my dad and you would think, okay, well, maybe he doesn't want to open up to his son about something he's struggling with. But, but why not? I don't, I don't think he ever had a conversation with anyone, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. about something he was struggling with. Not even his wife in many cases. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of factors. I definitely agree with you that we kind of gravitate towards those scapegoats. It's the feminist movement or it's this idea of toxic masculinity. I do think there's some truth to that of this kind of browbeating in the culture where it's almost like by just by definition, by being a man, you are bad, you are wrong. There's something mm. wrong with you. Masculinity is toxic. You know, that sort of framing is permeating into a lot of different things in the culture. But I think largely it's much more kind of what you're speaking to. And then, yeah, they're just not having these spaces for it to be safe for men to to actually open up and explore. But and, yeah, and I, Mike or Connor, what, yeah, what do you think of that? I was, the last part that you were just going to say, that's kind of what I was going to say, is the space for men to feel safe. I don't think the shadow, as you talk about in the book, like men feel safe enough to reveal this version of them, this shadow that exists. And I know for me, growing up, youngest of eight, I would watch, I know, Connor, you said domesticated, like I would watch my dad, who's the bodybuilder, working six days a week, running his uh, his plumbing business, would come home tired, eat his food. And I would witness arguments happen mainly about money, typically growing up. But I would just see my dad, who I love so much, but just like, fuck, man, almost like surrendering every Friday on payday where it would like, it's just like this surrender. And I don't, I don't know that I can't say, oh my gosh, my dad was so happy every time he came home. Like I didn't see that version of him all the time. And that's when I heard when you said domesticated, I feel like this powerful, ambitious, hungry, driven man didn't necessarily have the coaching or the tutelage or the mentorship or the space to like 
navigate how to portray his masculinity inside of the house as a husband and as a father. So therefore, it was really tough for me to witness that version of him as a husband, as a father, because he didn't have that mentorship. And that's why I am drawn to your work so much and groups like Front Row Dads and some of the other guests we've had on the podcast, because I have enough intuition now after going through personal growth and self-development for the last two decades or so to see that I'm perfectly imperfect as a human and we're all having a human experience, but I really resonate a lot with what you just said. And I really appreciate you bringing that in into the space. Can I add two things real quick? I, I think I think there's two other things that I would just bring into the mix of like why this is happening because it, it, it's a multifaceted issue. I think in our modern culture, it's so common that people want to have it be very black and white. So this one thing is causing the problem and it's almost never. Like pretty much if you hear somebody, I'm not saying any of us have done this, but I was just talking about the culture. Like if you hear somebody saying this is the one contributing factor to the problem, they're almost always wrong. They're trying to peddle something, some ideology, some opinion, some perspective that benefits them in some way. But I think the other contributing factors to this are, one, we are living through what I write about in the book as the plague of absent fathers. And so again, one in four children in America will grow up without a father figure present in the household or right, absent father as defined by the Palgrave Handbook of Men, which is one of the largest psychological literature on men in psychology is it doesn't mean that your father wasn't in the house. It can mean that your father was there, but was working constantly to no fault of his own, right? Maybe that's what he had to do in order to put food on the table, in order to make sure that the family survived, so that the rent was paid or the mortgage was paid and people had food to eat. It can mean that he was an addict. And so he was there again, but he was emotionally absent or that he was just completely emotionally disconnected. So having an absent father doesn't just mean that he wasn't there in the house. It can also mean that he was present. You just never got time with him. He never talked to you. He didn't encourage you. He didn't take you to practice. Like Those types of things, I think, are very damaging. And the interesting thing that's starting to come out of the research of this is that there's nothing in necessarily wrong with a single parent household for young girls. So on average, young girls are going to survive that single parent household better than young boys. Young boys will come out of a single parent household. And I know this is hard to hear for some people, right? Because there are some people out there that are like, I'm a single parent, but we have to be able to look at some of these things to be able to say, okay, then what do we do about them? So young boys on average are going to really struggle without some kind of father figure around. And again, the data and the research backs this up in the sense that 85% of all kids who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes which is 20 times the national average. 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless kids, right? 90% of all kids, teenagers who run away from home come from fatherless homes, right? And so you can just go down the list and see that this has a net negative impact and who it's predominantly impacting negatively is young boys. So I think that fatherless piece has been a huge part of it. And then the other one to just throw out there, is that in many ways, we have been telling men now for a number of years, maybe for decades, that they're not needed socially and culturally. And that is psychologically damaging to say you're not needed or you're dangerous. And so a lot of young men are like, how do I be a man in a society that is telling me that I'm not necessary to be in a relationship with, or I'm not necessary within the workforce? Just, it's a little obscure. So I think a lot of young men look out on the content and the narrative that's being sort of positioned online. And oftentimes what they're hearing is all men are dangerous, all men are this way, men aren't needed. And there's this narrative that's being propagated to the point that like, you can go on Google right now and type in, would the world be better without men? And guess what you'll find? Hundreds of articles by people who are asking this insane freaking question. And some of them are coming up with the answer of, yes, the world would be so much better without men. I think that doesn't help. It just that I would be remiss to say that doesn't help because a lot of young boys specifically 
are hearing that. And then they're hearing this very rigid, one-dimensional version of what it means to be a man from certain individuals online. And they buy into it because there's purpose, because there's meaning, because they're saying, hey, you actually do have value. And it draws them into what can be maybe an unhealthy framework. So I think that those are also two contributing factors that we just need to throw out there. That sounds like we're fucked, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're all screwed. It's yeah. over. This, I mean, this is really insightful. It brings me back to when I was reading the book, The Boy Crisis, and a lot of these statistics that the author talks about. His name is slipping my mind right now, but I'm sure you're familiar with Warren Farrell. There you go. I knew you would know. But one of the things I thought was so fascinating in the book where he said, if you survey parents right now, what would you rather have, a son or a daughter? And I don't remember the number, but I remember it was a resounding daughter to bring a, a girl into this world right now versus a boy. And it mirrors a lot of the statistics and a lot of the trends and a lot of things that you've already mentioned, a lot of the stats we mentioned in the book too. We can obviously keep riffing on the problems for quite some time because I really would love to just pivot just some for a little bit into what do we do about it? And I know in in the book, you talked about this idea of self-leadership, the ability to influence and guide yourself towards highest potential and purpose. Now, obviously a boy, if we're talking about a young, I have a two-year-old, I know Andrew has two sons, but you said you have your 22-month-old son. So we got, we're raising the next generation of, of men at work right now, just on this podcast. It's like, at, my curiosity is at what age, in your opinion, does this self-leadership for a man begin? Is it at boyhood? You're raising your 22-month-old. Like, At what point are you going to be like, all right, this is what it means to be a man. Like my dad, I don't remember, he tried to teach me some of those things, but it's not like there was, there, it was at a curriculum, but mm. when does self-leadership begin when you're raising a boy into becoming this man that we are going to talk about the solution in just a moment, I'm sure. I first off just want to say that anytime, it's very easy sometimes when I talk about these things for people to be like, oh, you're pro-boy or you're pro-men. And so that means that you're anti-women. And I just want to be very explicitly clear that advocating for the development of boys and men doesn't mean that I'm not in favor of advocating for girls and women. And that those two things can coexist. And I think that's incredibly important because I think part of the challenge that's emerging in our culture is that it's everything's black and white. It's one or the other. Either you're with women or you're against them. And that's nonsense. I can be 100% in favor of women. And my wife is great at what she does. She's one of the best in the business. She's a licensed marriage th and family therapist. And I can advocate for her to the end of the earth and support her and love her and cherish her and see her as an equal, while still also saying, I think that there's things that we need to address within young boys and men. So I, I just want to put that out there because I think that's very important for us to find some common ground to say we can address both of these problems, both of the issues on the table. As for and, and, the, and to that point, it's like we want to raise really good men so that way they can be great partners for those women and raise great daughters right. as well. So it's it is a full circle. It's not a competition or a rivalry to your point. What's going on? Better Than Rich Show listener, Biggs here. Just interrupting this episode to make you aware of something that we're up to. We are putting on our five-day mini course once again. Last time we did this, we had 100 people sign up. People were ranting and raving about this thing. It's really awesome. We teach the power of automation, delegation, and business systems because we know that so many entrepreneurs have escaped the 9 to 5, but then they end up working 24-7. And we want to help you win back your time and your freedom. The course is designed to help you win back 13 to 37 hours of your week every single week. We call it win back your freedom and increase your profits. And the whole thing is only 29 bucks. So we're going to teach you business systems, automation, delegation, flow charts, how to use you know virtual assistants. There's a really cool VIP offer we always encourage people to do. It's just a little bit more. But we really are strong believers in this and we know that you'll love it too. So head on over betterthanrich.com backslash podcast for a special offer. Again, that's betterthanrich.com backslash podcast. Let's get back to the show. Right. We're going to take that and just run with it a little bit. <laughs> Who loves emotionally intelligent men? Women do. Who benefits from having emotionally intelligent men? Women do. And I also think that there's an important sort of like looming thing, which is that women still want men who are strong and grounded and together, but they also still want men who are capable and engaged in society. Perfect example of that. I think the stat is 80 to 85% of women who have a college degree will not date men without one. So if you have the college population 
full of women and not men, and you're creating this massive imbalance in culture and society, what you're going to start to see more of, and people are already starting to see this, is that there's this huge population of women who are very educated, who are very successful, and the pool of men that they want to date is shrinking increasingly. So that's actually to a woman's benefit to have some of these conversations and to enter into it. But I think that when does this self-leadership piece start to show up? I think it's role modeled from the get-go. So my son sees me work out all the time and he loves to come into the gym. I have I bought these gymnastics rings to hang from the ceiling and he likes to come into the gym and just like swing off of them. And I think from right from the get-go, he's getting a sense of dad is taking care of himself. Dad is leading himself. And that will continue to happen when I get things wrong, I can admit it. When I uh, screw up as a parent or as the husband to his mother, that he'll see a man who can lead himself in a respectful way to admit wrong, you know, and admit wrongdoing. And so it begins with modeling. And I think that's incredibly important because children learn and us as human beings, we learn through modeling. Men and boys especially, boys learn through modeling. They see what you do and they try and pick it up, right? The reason why my son started swinging off of those rings is because I was using them for push-ups one day. And then he went and tried to mess around with them. And so I think it begins young in the sense that we model for our sons and for the younger generation of men what it looks like to lead ourselves. And then as they cross the threshold into hitting puberty and entering into being a teenager, and all of a sudden they have copious amounts of testosterone flowing through their body and they're getting boners on the bus and in class and wanting to watch porn and do all this crazy shit, that we begin to interject in a way that says, cool, you're 16, you could drive your car at 200 kilometers an hour through a farmer's field. Or what might be the more responsible things to do? Like, how can we direct some of that energy? Maybe we take that and put it into martial arts or a sport or helping you to start your own business, if that's something that you're interested in at a young age. And so we start to insert ourselves and encourage them to lead themselves with respect. And I have the fortune of working with some father-son clients, which is a very fun and unique experience. Men that are bringing their 16-year-old son into coaching, into a therapeutic environment, who are trying to say, what have I done wrong? How am I modeling this for my son? So I think that we start to model it, then we start to teach it directly, right? By taking our sons out into the wilderness and teaching them how to just do basic things, start a fire out in the wilderness, build a fort, giving them the sort of tools and resources to connect them to nature and the life that is outside of them is, I think, incredibly important. And then we start to see where they're curious and where they might actually want to lead themselves, whether that's within some creative endeavor like music or art or dance, or whether it's within gymnastics or some form of sport or some sort of entrepreneurial endeavor. And we start to see if we can step back enough as a parent to encourage and nourish the flourishing of what's emerging in that young boy. And I think in doing that, we evoke that self-leadership out of them. And I think the final thing that I'll say is we encourage risk. We have, and there's, again, there's a ton of research that's been done on this by people like Jonathan Haidt about how we have created this very coddled version of parenting, the younger generation. I think that it has a very sort of, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but like squelching, I want to say, which is probably not the right word. Like, you know, when you put out a fire, what's that word that I'm looking for? You put out a fire. Suffocating or, yeah. That'll work perfectly. It's suffocating for a young boy. And so we know that part of the role of what a father can do for his children, specifically what a father can do for his son, is to encourage risk-taking in a meaningful way, not in a reckless way, and that the absence of that can be quite dangerous, right? That the absence of that can lead to seeking comfort constantly and complacency and not having developed a deeper sense of grit or determination. And so if you can start to encourage that risk-taking, what you're actually doing is saying, lead yourself into some interesting unknown territory and see what happens. <laughs> so I would say that those are the main pieces. Yeah, so such a good answer, Connor. I really love how 
thoughtful and directed you are with these answers and also just how much you understand the full scope of it. Your expertise is, is really great. Yeah, you, de- uh, you definitely had me when you said the boner on the bus. I was like, oh shit, I remember those days. <laughs> I feel like every I feel like every dude had a boner on the bus at oh, some point. God. If you rode the bus and you were in junior high and high school, you got a hard on. Oh, it was just something. It's like your body was like bouncing around, and all of a sudden your dick was like, "Is it? Is something happening? Something's happening in here." <laughs> Dude, you had me. So I, weird. I, I I just laughed out loud on that one. I was like, "Damn, I remember those you know, those middle school yeah, bus the worst. rides." You're sitting in class, right? The teacher like drawing some like formula on the whiteboard and all of a sudden just like what the hell is going on here i gotta go to the bathroom this is just it's it's a strange time my son's seven my older son and for his eighth birthday i already told him we're gonna go on a camping trip and we've never really done much like that we're not like outdoorsy too much maybe we'll go on a hike and stuff here and there but we're gonna go on a camping trip no technology and we're gonna have to talk and he's able to ask me any questions and it's just a, an introductory to that lesson before dude, you got to learn how to build thing. a fire dude i got to learn how to build a fire i got to study i don't know how to build a damn fire <laughs> <Right. You know? laughs> yeah, i love this idea of encouraging risk we have a saying that with him where i say safety third i think he's repeated that to his teachers it's got a little bit of hot water but it's just this idea that no like safety isn't the most important thing hey can i climb on this hill and ride my bike down i'm like yeah, do it. Push yourself. Go for it. And what if I fall? Maybe you get a scraped or whatever. I also heard, I forget who it was, but somebody online talking about, don't say careful. And I found myself doing that all the time, right? It's like, hey, careful, careful. And instead say, pay attention. Hey, pay, pay attention. Just, I like what you're doing. Just pay attention. Because we're just conditioned to just, of course, our little babies. We want to, pr- we want to protect them. Is. Yeah, of course. It's a natural instinct. How do you create a partnership under that umbrella? Because if, does it matter if like the mom is saying, be careful, and the dad is saying, pay attention? Or do you try to get in unison with your partner to say the same thing? Or is there like a, does it's that a matter? It's a good question. Or? Yeah. How do you enroll your partner into some of these concepts? Or You try and talk about it. And my wife and I try and be on the same page of how we want to approach sleep, how we want to approach talking to our son, how we want to approach what discipline looks like. We've even gone so far as to talking about how do we want to speak to him about social media and drugs like mushrooms and MDMA and ketamine, which are all becoming very commonplace, even within therapeutic spaces. How do we want to talk to him about sex and porn? And the average, I think the data is like the average boy between eight and 12 is going to find porn. We really, as parents, I remember I was speaking to an all-boys school in Minnesota, and it was an all-boys college prep Catholic military school, and there were 650 boys. And so I talked to them in the morning about transitioning into manhood and what that looks like and what it looks like to be a man within our modern culture and some of the challenges that come along with it. And I had a slide that just said porn on it. And the boys in the school were be like between the ages of 10 to graduation. So like 17. Yeah, 17, I would say. And so the slide came on and all of the boys just erupted. They just erupted, just went nuts. Woo, yeah. Oh, they just, they went wild. And I was like, great, we're going to talk about porn. And I said, all the teachers, because it was a two-level school, Right. And all the teachers were up on the top level. And I said, all right, all the teachers, you're going to turn your backs for a moment. So I made all the teachers, all the parents that were there, they all had to turn their back and turn away from the boys. And I said, all right, guys, let's just have a quick conversation. Just take a look around. Notice that none of your parents, none of your teachers are looking because some of the parents were there. I said, raise your hand if you watch porn. And Mm -hmm. almost every single one of them raised their hand. And this is like 10 to 17. And when I say every single one of them, 95% of them, right? So we have to start to have these conversations with young boys because the amount of pornographic information that they can have access to is mind-boggling. And we're performing a kind of like unfettered experiment on our youth especially on young men, when it comes to pornography. You just think about the fact that a 15-year-old boy in the span of an hour or two can see more naked women than a man in his entire lifetime 150 years ago or ever. Any man ever in existence has... We had to watch it through the scrambled the scrambled television, the right channel. Oh, well, shit. I, I got dial-up internet when I was like 13, and so that led me down the path. But I think we have to have these conversations with our son to say like, what do you think about pornography? Or have your friends ever talked about it? Or have your friends ever shown you it? 
And to open up that dialogue, to be able to try and have some kind of honest discourse with our sons to say, what do you think about this? And what do you know about it? And here's my perspective on it. To not try and say, porn is terrible and don't ever watch it. And you're going to go to hell if you masturbate. And I think that kind of stuff, if and when we do it, can be even more enticing for a young boy who's, oh, you don't want me to do that? I've watched my son even now at 22 months where I'm like, don't do that. No. And he wants to do it immediately. He's, oh, you don't want me to do that? I'm going to go get myself into that shit. And so I think we have to, and maybe that's not all kids, right? He's probably got a little bit of his dad in him in the sense that that rebel side, but we have to be able to engage our sons in a conversation about some of these harder hitting topics and not avoid them. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Thank you so much for kind of the perspective on raising children, especially boys. I'm curious, going back to adult men and what we can do on ourselves, one of the concepts that you talk about is the shadow. I'm a big, I love Jordan Peterson's work. So I've really gotten into Jung and you know his work, looking at some of these ideas and concepts. And it's also just something that if you think about for five seconds and you look at your actual life and you say, what was motivating me at these moments? You can tell that not always is it super self-evident what's motivating you. Certainly from my perspective, there's been a number of times where I go, what the hell was I thinking? And of course, what that means is that there was some other force, maybe the shadow, that's actually interjecting its will into the situation. From your perspective, what is the shadow and what sort of work needs to be done around it, particularly for men? Yeah. The beautiful thing about the rational mind is that you can create rational lies, right? And so to rationalize is sometimes to create rational lies. And so your rational mind can become hijacked by the shadow, by this part of you that is, maybe I'll just say this directly, the shadow is the psychological part of you that you don't want other people to know about, that you don't want to necessarily admit to, your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, your worries, your pain that you don't want to deal with, maybe the pain from not having your father around as a boy or the pain from being broken up with in a past relationship that you never really dealt with. And so there's this insecurity that's showing up in your current relationship, right? Because you don't feel good enough. So your inferiorities reside within the shadow. And there's a great saying by a guy named Francis Weller where he said that your pain has its own intelligence. So when you sabotage, right? When you even ask that question, like, what the hell was I thinking? You cognitively and consciously likely weren't really thinking. This part of you, this pain, this shadow was in the driver's seat. And so it was calling the shots. It was convincing you to message that girl on Instagram, even though you're in a relationship. It was convincing you to open up the web browser and watch porn at one o'clock in the morning when you have a big presentation the next day. It was convincing you to have the extra drink, even though you have to be up early the next morning to whatever. So your shadow is the part of you that you don't like. That's a good way of putting it. You don't like, you don't want to admit exists, and you don't want other people to know exists. And so our part of our work, and a huge part of what I put into the book, is twofold. One, this shadow is the thing that causes sabotage. So Jung said that the shadow forms an unconscious snag that aims to thwart our most well-meaning intentions. So essentially, when you set a goal for yourself, you want to put on some muscle, you want to lose some weight, you want to save some money, or whatever the goal is, what sabotages you is this part of you, your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, your worries, your shadow. And so we have to begin to start to look at what the contents of the shadow actually are. So for many of us, as an example, in childhood, we had to abandon some type of authenticity in order to survive or belong, maybe with our family, maybe with kids at school, maybe with friends. And so we learn to negate or hide certain parts of ourselves. So I'll give you an example very quickly, and then I'll just pause. If you grew up in a household where let's just say that your father had a lot of anger, right? Maybe sometimes he had lost his temper, he was volatile, he'd yell, maybe he'd yell at you, maybe he'd yell at your mom, maybe he'd yell at your siblings, but you were just generally scared of his anger. And then you heard your mom say things like, don't ever be like your father, right? He's such an angry man, don't be like him, or men are dangerous, or some version of that. It's likely that what you did to cope with that was to disconnect from your anger, to actually disconnect from your assertiveness. And so what's actually in your shadow 
is your assertiveness and your anger, your capacity to say no, your ability to say boundaries, your ability to say, I don't like that in a relationship or with friends or with family. And so part of the shadow work that you might be doing is reclaiming that part in a healthy way so that you can actually be assertive, so that you can say no. This is the classic nice guy. The classic nice guy that's out there is afraid of his own anger and afraid of his own assertiveness. So that's a little bit about what the shadow is. And, you know, the book I actually designed with a ton of questions and resources. It's meant to be 80% book and 20% workbook, where you're actually having to do this work as you go through and read the book. We as men want shit to do. (laughs) It's like, okay, I don't want to just read about a bunch of concepts. I actually want to integrate these things and do these things. And so the book has a ton of that as you go through. And I'm glad you said that because that's what I was literally about to chime in and say, because I got to the page 72, 73, where's where I ended during last night preparing just for this conversation. And I'm excited to finish the rest of the book, but just on those pages alone about the shadow of the father and the questions of what I wanted my father to teach me as a boy was, and what my father gave me that was invaluable was, and the one skill or trait that I've wanted to develop is, and some of those fill in the blanks were just so profound, but then I really love the idea of forgiving and releasing him entirely for being at fault for whatever it is that he didn't show up as. And this exercise, Mm. what's interesting is that a version of this, not for my father, I went through a date with destiny with Tony Robbins, and a version of this was supposed to be for the mother or the father, But I did it actually for my older sister. She's two years older than me. I used to kick my ass and was a bully growing up. And she really tormented me a little bit or a lot. You know, I was kind of I was kind of a pain in the ass, I'm sure. But because she was like the arch nemesis, there was a lot of pain that I experienced as a young boy. And she was a young girl. She didn't really know what the fuck she was doing, but she was really messing me up that I had to work through some of that. So some of these questions that you answered wasn't necessarily about my father or my mother. It was about my nemesis or that version of the rival, which was ended up being my sister. And I did a lot of that work and it was super therapeutic and extremely healing. And I did that work over probably about a decade ago at this point and still continue to do it. The point that I bring here is for anybody who's listening, or if you're watching on YouTube, this book, the men's work book, you don't have to pay 10 grand to go to date with destiny like I did. And you have the blueprint laid out here, which is really beautiful. And I'm so grateful that you put this together because as I was revisiting this, I'm like, wow, this is so deep and I can go there and I have the tools to revisit some of this. And I didn't need those tools. I'm glad I have them because you laid it out so beautifully in, in this book. So I just want to acknowledge you for that because it is really great reading content, but the exercises and the questions are just so thought provoking and profound that I encourage every listener to go pick it up for sure. We usually wait till the end to plug that, but I just feel compelled during this topic. And I could talk to you for freaking hours, man. And I just really respect your time. And we, just so everyone knows, he said kilometers because he's he's from Canada. So uh, just, uh, you know, just so. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a transplant. I live in New York now, but yeah. <laughs> We usually keep these conversations to around this, uh, you know, one hour mark. And we obviously can go for so much longer. I just wanted to say thank you again for just bringing your wisdom and your counsel to the Better Than Rich show under this umbrella of modern men and all the research that you've done and how you can help these individuals because it is a sensitive topic that's some that more people need to talk about. So thank you for doing the work you do. And we ask every guest at the end of every episode, the same three questions. The first one that I'd like to ask you is, is what do you think the world needs most today? I think the world needs less addiction to certainty and more of a capacity and tolerance for the unknown. I think we've entered into a time where we're interacting with so many people online and there's so many unanswered questions that it becomes existentially overwhelming for folks. I think that most of us have not built the nervous systems, built the bodies, built the minds that can actually cope with the amount of uncertainty and unknown that we face in the everyday life. And so I think if we can begin to develop bodies and minds that are capable of handling the unknown. We can model that for our kids who, for many of them, are terrified of what they think the future holds. So I think that's incredibly helpful. Beautiful. What one to three books would you recommend everyone check out? What would you say? Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Beautiful book. He's passed, but he was a Jesuit priest. He's very direct, very funny, 
And I usually try and read that book once a year. Wisdom of Insecurities by Alan Watts, I think, is a phenomenal book. It's really about, in some ways, it's like very spiritual, existential shadow work. Plus, Alan Watts is just incredible. And the third one, I think I really enjoy a lot of Margaret Atwood's books. And I think that Oryx and Crake is a really interesting read that I don't normally recommend because it's fiction. It's not personal development. It's not in the spiritual realm, but it's, if you just want a book to go and read that's like very engaging and very well written, that's a solid one. Or Dune, because it's just awesome, but it's hard to follow. <laughs> nice. Wait, we don't get too many fiction books recommended, so that's so we appreciate that. And we haven't had any of those books actually recommended, so those are all new for our listeners. So thank you for that. And our third question, Connor, before you can tell our listeners where to find you and stay in touch and where they can get the book, the third question is, what does it mean to you to be better than rich? I think for me, it's really about how I relate to time and how I relate to being present in any given moment for the people that I'm with, for my family, for my friends, for my internal experience. And for me, being better than rich is having a healthy relationship with time, not feeling like I'm wasting it, not feeling like I don't have enough of it, not feeling like I can't get enough or whatever the case may be, actually being able to spend my time and have a healthy relationship with time for me is better than any kind of wealth. Because the majority of people, when you really listen to why they want to get rich, it's so that they can have a better relationship with time. It's so that they can have more time or do what they want with their time. And so I think that's what we're all aiming for. It's a great answer. It's a great answer, Connor. And I'm just so grateful that you are here and spending your time with us. Obviously, you have your top-ranked podcast. You have this awesome book. You have your TEDx talk. You've been on stages with some of the best minds in the personal growth space. Where can people find you? Obviously, one Google search will pop up. But if, <laughs> if they want to pick up the book, if they want to stay in touch with you, if they want to keep the conversation going, where could they stay in touch? Yeah, best way is mantalks.com. The book is mantalks.com forward slash book. And then you can hit me up at Instagram on mantalks. It's just M-A-N-T-A-L-K-S. And yeah, feel free to send me a message. Let me know if you enjoyed this conversation. If you have questions, if you hated it, if you disagreed with it, I'm open to all of it. But I would love to hear what your thoughts are. And what I usually say is man it forward. You know, if you enjoyed the conversation, share it with somebody and definitely share the book with somebody because my mission is to make the book the number one resource that all coaches, all therapists, anybody that knows a man or works with men recommends to two men. It's going to rival Way of Superior Man. Dude. We've recommended that one. We've heard that one on the show quite frequently. So this is definitely a great playbook to add to that the Way of the Superior Man bookshelf. So I will say that. And I also want to plug your Man Talks Alliance. I know you didn't mention it. I don't know if you're still adding more people to it, but it, the value and the content and the community, <laughs> I don't even know. Is it still the same price that, that I pay? Or did you raise that or... I don't know if you want no, to plug the price. No, it's, but. yeah, it's like, it's, uh, well, it's, it's 47 bucks a month. Okay. And yeah, I bring in experts every month and we're about to go through the book for the next three months and basically make like a mini course out of it. So guys can do the work alongside. It's a steal. Yeah. I know I get, I know I pay for it every month and I'm like, it's yeah. like, like nothing compared to all the other personal growth communities I'm part I of and that. coaches and stuff for the value. So you're definitely undercharging and adding tremendous value there. So I encourage people to join me and Connor's community of Man Talks Alliance. And again, Connor, thank you, brother. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks. for delivering for the Better Than Rich audience. Andrew, as always, thank you for always asking profound amazing questions. And listener, thank you so much for supporting the show and being a part of the conversation with us. And of course, if this show helped you, pay it forward. It's your turn. Share it with others. Leave a rating review. Subscribe on YouTube. And remember, as always, leave today better than you found it. Until next time, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Instagram at better than underscore rich and join our Facebook group at the better than rich show. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time. And remember, leave today better than you found it.